What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Anonymous Investors Podcast. I am your host, the Crypto Warlord. And as always, I'm visited by my wonderful co-host, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, the man, the myth, the legend himself, the man of the hour, God. What up, God? Tell the people what's going on. What's going on here? What's going on? Mr. Warlord. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So there's a lot of cool shit going on in the world. A lot of very interesting stuff to talk about. As always, it seems that there's always stuff going on in this news cycle. It seems within 24 hours, it's constantly changing. So we always have a ton of shit to talk about. Uh, so one thing in particular I'd love to bring up this week that I know that we did briefly mention last week. We spoke about Disney and all the uh, you know different events that transpired with that, the passing of that bill in Florida, and then DeSantis cutting uh, Disney's uh, special tax status, which was very interesting to see. But this one instance in particular that I'd love to talk about is it was an article published by Bloomberg this past week, and it's called How Wally Predicted the Future. So Wally was a Disney movie uh, created by Pixar that released in 2008. It's one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. So in this movie, there's a there's a ship called the Axiom, and SpaceX actually recently dubbed their mission that happened on April 8th, Axiom Mission 1. So that was one thing that I thought was pretty cool. SpaceX paying tribute to this awesome movie. Uh, so within Wally, uh, one of the main plot lines of the movie, the Earth becomes uninhabitable due to overconsumption from a company called By and Large that has striking similarities to Amazon. So By and Large is very similar to Amazon in a sense that both companies are monopolistic. And it's said that Amazon controls 40% of the U.S. e-commerce market. So by definition, they are a monopoly. Um, and then in the film itself, by and large, operates these spaceships that are used for space tourism, uh, which obviously kind of draws parallels between Bezos's Blue Origin and then this fictional company. So I thought it was really interesting to talk about that because Bezos in particular seems to have this keen interest in expanding his umbrella and expanding his empire into space tourism, as well as growing this whole e-commerce giant. And um, it's just pretty funny how... There's this old saying, it's very cliche, it's about how art imitates reality or reality imitates art, and I can't help but think that's true. Now, on that same note of Amazon, we recently saw that the Amazon unionization process is currently being undergone, and in the process, we see that Amazon's app, excuse me, <clears throat> we see that Amazon has an app that all of their employees use to communicate with one another. And it was mandated by Amazon themselves. And the reason why I bring this up is, so we saw one of the warehouses in New York unionize, and we also see a major unionization push happening in Alabama as well. So over the course of this process, they're using this app to communicate in-house to one another. So I actually have a list of leaked band words that came out. And I believe these are from The Guardian. The Guardian got a hold of these and published these to the public. So the word, I hate, union, fire, terminated, compensation, pay raise, bullying, harassment, I don't care, rude, this is concerning, stupid, this is dumb, prison, threat, petition, grievance, injustice, diversity, ethics, fairness, trash, robots. Here's one that's very interesting that they banned restrooms you can't use the term restrooms plantation slave slave labor master coalition representation here's a buzzword commonly thrown around living wage and unfair and favoritism were the terms thrown around also unite in unity is banned in that list as well uh, so there's been a lot of stuff that's happened over the past, you know, really few years with Amazon, particularly with they had a congressional hearing where they were ordered to testify before Congress about the alleged mistreatment of employees. And during that time, it was kind of revealed that some of these employees, particularly delivery drivers or people on the floor, on the factory floor, um, had to pick for a lack of a better term piss into water bottles to meet the quotas, um, whether that be for delivery or for packing boxes. And Amazon, at least these workers allege that Amazon strategically placed these restrooms well out of reach of the warehouse floor so that if you went to go use the bathroom, 
you would kind of be fucked and you'd be behind on your quota for the hour. So I think they have hourly quotas for like packing boxes and um, meeting certain shipment requirements. So God, what do you think about Amazon's, you know, monopolistic nature? Do you think that it is a monopoly? Um, and do you think that there's anything to be concerned about, particularly with Bezos's control of the Washington Post and his sort of shifting of like the narrative around him and the press that he's able to garner by owning his own media platform? Uh, no, because there's many different media outlets. Like, I don't even know who even reads the Washington Post anymore. That's like a totally obsolete media outlet. It's totally completely useless. And the fact that these people are complaining about working for Amazon and, you know, it's the bathroom's too far. Why don't they just quit? There's 5 million job openings uh, with only 150,000 unemployed people. So they get a job somewhere else. Uh, it's paying minimum wage. There's tons of minimum wage job openings. Literally, there's signs everywhere. Oh, we're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring. So just get a, a different minimum wage job. If you're working for minimum wage, you have to be. You should be selective on what minimum wage job you pick, and you should pick the easiest one possible. Amazon's, you know, they want you to like run around up and down like it's a circus or some shit, and you know they want you to do tricks like a little elephant, and you know get a minimum wage job somewhere else. So now on that same line of thought, after the revelations that I told you with this app and the, and this whole list of leaked words that are banned from being used in the app, do you think that Amazon is violating the workers' right to free speech? Oh, for sure, for sure, most definitely. And, you know, there should be repercussions for that. Um, maybe the employees should have their own communication channels, you know, through like Slack, uh, group chats, group me, et cetera. What about Signal? Yeah, Signal, they should be communicating outside of Amazon servers. So, you know, they can't be uh, silenced. I just want to go ahead and say that all of the people who are in Amazon who currently work there and they have their own smart devices, flat out, I mean, you have to have your own sort of channels of communication as God's alluded to. But I think a good way to do that too as well is if Amazon has uh, Wi-Fi in the building and you're connected to the Wi-Fi, honestly, just get a VPN, virtual private network, and... You know, you could use any sort of web-based uh, communication device, or you, like I said, you could use Signal or any type of end-to-end -end encryption um, would be good because they can't really peer into like what you're doing on there, as well as with a VPN. I mean, a VPN, you're basically just piggying back off their Wi-Fi network, and then you're sort of branching off into your own little um, proxy is, is pretty much what a VPN is. So for the most part, I think that's a good strategy to do. But nonetheless, on that same line of thought, billionaires uh there's been a lot of weird shit going on particularly in the realm of electronic cars electronic cars i'm gonna cut that <laughs> i'm cutting this so speaking of billionaires i don't know if you saw this god but there was a major battle that's been going on this past week and it's been between elon musk and bill gates so if you don't know elon musk and bill gates have this long sort of history of kind of feuding with one another. And it goes back to when Elon was on the JRE, on the Joe Rogan experience, back in 2021. So at that point, Elon Musk explained how Bill Gates had an investment in BYB and how Warren Buffett also had an investment in BYB, which is an electric, an electric car competitor to Tesla. And Elon says that he liked that they were investing in the technology, but he didn't like how they were kind of like going against him. So much so that during this podcast episode, Elon Musk went out and he revealed that Bill Gates was actually shorting Tesla. And he found this out through intermediaries. Um, he didn't say explicitly who, but he said that he had like de facto proof that Bill Gates was shorting Tesla. And he says, what the fuck? Well, if this guy is such a proponent for stopping climate change and for green energy and for renewable energies, why would he short the stock of like the biggest company in the space that's producing the most innovation? So uh, there's no way to, for people to find out how he knew. Was it through like a filing or an SEC filing or something like that? So SEC filings, um, typically for large institutional level investors or individuals with a net worth over $100 million, 
Um, they have to file what's called a 13D or a 13F. And Bill Gates did not have to do that. And so much so that whenever you short, you actually don't have to disclose short positions with the SEC. A lot of people don't know that. So I don't know how Elon Musk found this out, but he claimed that he knew people from the uh, TED, like how they have the TED Talks that are sponsored. He claims that he knew through that and then as well as some of his billionaire friends who I guess are you know, some mutual friends that he has, uh, you know, with Bill Gates. So apparently it got out to him and he was very upset about that because he's saying, you know, we're an innovation company. We're the leader in that space. You know, what we're doing for renewables is kind of, you know, pushing the envelope. We're on the forefront. And all of a sudden, this guy who claims to be about solving climate change and all these other, you know, initiatives, all of a sudden he's just fucking shorting, you know, basically the industry, like the majority of the industry. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Bill Gates, you know, I think he he has this guy that runs his portfolio, so you might not even know that he's that he's shorting Tesla. He he doesn't manage his own money; it's managed by uh, this guy that runs his uh, his fund firm. Yeah, so, so he's actually, like the one that shorted Tesla. Uh, all right, so this whole thing that you're referring to. Um, you're referring to Michael Larson, who's an employee of Cascade Investments, which is Bill Gates's private investment company. Um, so Michael Larson was the one who actually pitched to Bill Gates to buy up farmland. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, you need to buy up farmland because at this point in time, we could become the single largest private farmland owner in, in the United States. And we can and because Bill Gates, his main push is that he wants to move people away from meat and towards like plant based diets. And the easiest way to do that, if you're Bill Gates and you have an investment in all these plant-based companies, is to just buy up farmland and just stop people from grazing cows and, um, you know, having hogs there and any sort of like meat that people have on a regular basis, whether that be goat, people, some people eat goat, you know, things like that, lamb. So just by buying up farmland, you could effectively rent to prospective farmers, which usually is the play in that space and in that whole farmland business. Um, if you really want to make money as an investor, the farmers make a decent amount of money. They don't make crazy money. You know, they, they make enough to get by. Um, but typically the larger play there, if you're an investor is to buy up fertile land that that's suitable in you know, different types of climates. Um, and then what you do is you rent it out to a prospective farmer and then you build in, um, so really there's like in, in residential real estate and commercial real estate, there's something called a Lira and, or excuse me, a Lura. And it's basically like a land use um, restrictive agreement. So it means that you can't do certain things with the land. So that exists within the farmland space. So if I owned land and I leased it out to God and he had cattle, I could say in a provision of the, this land use agreement, oh, you're not allowed to graze any cattle here. So effectively what Bill Gates did is that he pretty much bought all this land, became the the, the world's largest farmland owner, like single individual farmland owner. And he basically can just stop people from grazing cattle on that land at a moment's notice. And pretty much, I think he's kind of been pushing to do that because it bolsters his investments within this sort of plant-based uh, space. Well, I mean, I think you can have a hard time, you know, convincing people to move uh, completely to a plant-based diet. I don't know who, who the hell would want to move to a plant-based diet. There's no shot in hell I would, I would just switch my whole diet to just uh, rabbit food, completely rabbit food. And I thought uh, Laura's, like, you know, they're, they're not uh, agreements between tenants. I thought they were, like, you know, agreements between uh, the landowner and the government. Yeah, so I bring up Lurs because it's uh, it's just a good juxtaposition between um, farmland. It's it's essentially the reason why I brought it up is just that it's just an agreement between, in this case, an agreement between the farmland owner uh, and and then the renter who would be the farmer. So that that's really my main reason in bringing that up. And as far as eating rabbit food, I'm not really a big fan of rabbit food myself. Um, humans didn't evolve by eating plants and by eating soy and all this other liberal bullshit that they like to push humans evolved. And if you actually look at the data, it suggests that humans evolved and their brains evolved at such a rapid rate due to the consumption of meat and also through the main concentration of omega-3 fatty acids, which help out with the phospholipids and the lipid bilayer, which help with brain function and cognitive abilities. 
So really you're talking about human brains expanding to the size they did. It's pretty much directly tied to protein consumption. Um, there are, you know, uses for vegetables, but most of which, you know, these nutrients you can get through meat, because when you eat a cow, if the cow actually had some, had something that was very nutritious, like let's say it had grass, you know, the sun gives off energy to the grass, the cow eats the grass, and then the, the cow absorbs the nutrients from the grass. And then now you eating the cow, let's say you're actually getting nutrients directly from the sun, from the soil and from the cow itself by eating that. So, it, you know, the energy is retained because energy can't be created or destroyed. It's merely transferred as uh, Sir Isaac Newton's pointed out. And I'm sure that God speaks quite a bit about energy with Bitcoin. And he has, you know, a lot to say about that as we heard in the past, but typically what happens is that the energy is just transferred. So, you know, all that nutrition just flows up the food chain to you. And then if you got attacked by, I don't know, a grizzly bear, God forbid, then he's going to get the energy from the sun, the grass, the cow, and you, which is pretty funny. But nonetheless, the reason why I bring up Gates and this whole exchange, getting back to my main talking point here, there were supposed leaked text messages that came out. And it was a leaked text conversation between Bill Gates and Elon Musk that was posted on Twitter. And originally this stemmed from some type of article that was written by the New York Times. So someone posted screenshots of this conversation on Twitter and tagged Elon Musk and said, is there any validity to these messages? And Elon Musk replied, yeah, but I didn't leak it to the New York Times. They must have gotten it through friends of friends. I've heard from multiple people at TED that Gates still had half a billion dollar short against Tesla, which is why I asked him. So it's not exactly top secret. Holy fucking shit. That's all I can say. Holy fucking shit. So let's read into these messages here. So this was posted by Whole Mars blog. He says, so apparently Bill Gates hit up Elon Musk to discuss philanthropy on climate change. But Elon asked if he had a half a billion dollar short on Tesla. Bill told him he hasn't closed it out yet, so Elon told him to get lost. Not sure if this is true. So here are the messages in question. I'm reading them right now. Bill Gates, the first message that comes in is, Bill Gates is telling Elon that he's going to be landing on Wednesday at 7.20 to be clear. Elon replies, great. The next message, Elon says, do you still have a half billion dollar short position against Tesla? Bill replies, sorry to say I haven't closed it out. I would like to discuss philanthropy possibilities. To which Elon replies, sorry, I cannot take your philanthropy on climate change seriously when you have a massive short position against Tesla, the company doing the most to solve climate change. Very interesting stuff here, folks. Very interesting. Any thoughts on that, God? Any thoughts about the leaked text messages? Any sort of... um theories about how this got out. Elon saying friends of friends is, do you think that Elon could have potentially leaked this out to the public? And now he's kind of saving face because people are questioning where this got out and how it got out. Uh, so what are your thoughts about these text messages just in general? Does it make Bill Gates look like more of a slime ball than you already thought he was? That's my main question here. I mean, half a billion dollar short position doesn't seem that much, seem like that much when you were uh, 135 billion dollars that could just be a hedge not necessarily uh net short uh company because like a, a company like tesla apple google and uh facebook they make up a big chunk of the s p 500 and of index funds so it's a good indicator of the overall uh market conditions so shorting tesla could just be like uh hedging a portfolio against uh technology sector and of the overall general market itself so it's very interesting, too, because Elon Musk then goes on to tweet uh, his Twitter. Dude, he is the best follow on social media ever. Him and Kanye, the only two people to follow and interact with on Twitter. Uh, formerly 45 was a very good follow, but obviously he's been deplatformed. So really three people on Twitter who were worth following. Everyone else kind of fell by the wayside here. But I'll tell you this. Shortly thereafter, Elon Musk posted a picture and it compared Bill Gates to that pregnant man emoji that came out. And the, po and the post was captioned with saying, in case you need to lose a boner fast. <laughs> so anyway, Rogan 
the great Joe Rogan, everyone loves him, as Dana White called him, Dr. Joe Rogan, funny enough. Rogan even piled on recently when he was quoted as saying the following on his podcast. So he recently had a guest on, and they're talking about the over-commercialization of food, and Rogan goes out and goes as far as to say, Bill Gates keeps saying we've got to eat less meat. And we've got to cut our consumption of meat out entirely to be healthy. And that we're going to get used to eating these meat alternatives. When a guy like that says that, I'm like, are you making money because of this? Why are you saying that? Rogan then goes on to criticize Gates' physique, which I thought was hysterical. By the way, you look like shit. Because if you're eating those plant-based burgers or whatever the fuck you're doing, you are obese. By the definition of the word, a guy like Bill Gates telling people when he's got these breasts and this gut, and I'm like, this is crazy. You're one of the richest guys on earth. You have access to the best nutrients, doctors, and everything else. You could be in phenomenal shape. You're giving out public health advice. Meanwhile, you are sick. Pretty funny. He even goes on to say, it's literally a non-athlete trying to coach professionals. What the fuck are you on about? How are you giving any health advice when you look like that? Your health is piss poor. And Rogan himself even goes on to say that he's not a health professional, but he could tell just from looking at Gates that he isn't in the best shape whatsoever. Rogan goes on to say, I'm not a doctor, but when you've got man boobs and a gut and these toothpick arms, I'm like, hey, buddy, you're not healthy. Very interesting stuff, seeing Rogan go right at him. And the timing is very interesting, too, because you see Elon come out. These leaked tweets, or these leaked messages come out. Elon confirms the validity of them on Twitter, a platform in which he's very much looking to take private. And then Rogan immediately goes right after Gates and makes it a point to go after Gates on like the very next podcast. And we do know that Elon Musk and Joe Rogan are very good friends. Um, Elon Musk hangs out with Joe Rogan and... Uh, certain different comedy clubs, and they hang out backstage. I'm sure they have different channels of communication, and they probably speak pretty regularly, to be honest with you. Um, Elon Musk has been a frequent guest of JRE, so it's very interesting stuff to see that transpire and to unfold, um, particularly because you're talking about two people who really have kind of go gone against the grain. They've gone against this whole cancer ca cancel. <laughs> I was going to say cancer, but really, you know, cancel culture narrative. They've gone against that. They've been pushing for people to move towards becoming free thinkers and becoming more aware and also just pushing for improvement within people in general. So I guess my main question to you, God, is what do you think of Rogan's comments about Bill Gates? Do you think there's validity to it? I know how you feel about plant-based diets and how you don't think that they're very effective for, for people in the long term. But my main question here is Rogan's comments, like how do you take that towards Bill Gates? Do you think that, you know, really the bigger question, I guess, let me think about this a little bit. Really, the bigger question here is, do you think that Rogan's comments about Gates hold true? And do you think that if you're someone who's not in good shape, that you should sort of be this public health official and kind of telling people what to do? So do you think that someone who, at least as Joe Rogan classifies him as morbidly obese, should be giving the public health advice and lecturing them? Well, Google says Bill Gates is only 135 pounds. I guess when you have enough money, you could just buy whatever your weight is on Google. Is that true? 135 pounds. 135 pounds? Yeah, that's what Google says he weighs. I don't know, dude. I... I mean, if you really look at this post on Twitter, I I'm telling you, you got to look this up. Go to Elon's Twitter. It's like maybe the third or fourth tweet down. He's he's openly comparing Gates to the pregnant man emoji. And like Bill Gates has this giant gut and he's got these fucking D cup man boobs. You know, it it's pretty embarrassing. It's embarrassing. You know, this guy's 66 years old. Like Rogan says, he's got access to the best medicine, best doctors, best nutritionists. Doesn't take advantage of any of it. Just completely says, ah, fuck it. I'm not going to bother with that. Why would uh, I do that? In the pictures, I'm, he doesn't look that fat in the pictures I see. You got to go to Elon's Twitter and take a look at this whenever you find the time. 
It's fucking incredible. Very incredible. How tall is he? Probably like five five. Gates. Uh, I don't know how tall he is. I, I'm sure that his BMI is is showing that he's morbidly obese. To be completely honest with you, I, I would not be surprised if that was the case. Um, but it, anyway, in that same note of uh, obesity, <laughs> funny enough. So the Federal Reserve, speaking of obesity, the Federal Reserve has this crazy balance sheet, right? And most of which is it basically debt obligations that they have to pay. They've got to shrink their balance sheet, right? So you could argue that their balance sheet is pretty obese, not very healthy. And now the Federal Reserve's coming out and they, they're saying that they want to shrink their balance sheet by $95 billion a month. So how do you think that the Fed is going to do this with this strange dichotomy that they're in where they have to raise rates, but if they raise rates, they're fucking themselves over, but they also have to shrink their balance sheet. Like if you're Jerome Powell, like what's the game plan moving forward, right? Like typically in the past, we've seen with crashes and any sort of market downturns, the cutting of rates. Now we're going to see the rising of rates, which obviously is going to negatively impact certain markets, which I can talk much more about later on. But like, what's the Fed's game plan here? Because it can't just be lower rates, right? Like in any type of downturn or whatever the case may be. Now they're behind the eight ball. They have to raise rates because of all the excess money printing they did and a knee-jerk overreaction to COVID. It's like, what do you do here? What's the game plan? God, you're Jerome Powell now. What's the game plan? I want you to play armchair Federal Reserve chairman here. What, what, do, you, what do you do? What do you do? Well, you got to stop pussyfooting and, you know, doing these little quarter point base hikes. They should have been raising uh, half a percent to 0.75%. They just did that from the beginning instead of doing these little uh, quarter point basis hikes. And, you know, you got to run off more than 95. You got to run off 100 plus billion. You know, you got to do like 70 billion treasuries and like 30 billion mortgage backed securities. And, you know, you get it. You got to get this money off your balance sheet as quickly as possible so that you have some wiggle room in case of a recession to, to buy back uh, these uh, treasury securities and uh, MBSs. But, uh, yeah, I think we're in trouble here because uh, we're not we're not moving quick enough to curb inflation. Inflation is going into double digits and you know the fed is they're playing games they're moving around like turtles the, mar the market is moving quickly and, they, and they're moving like a turtle yeah i totally agree it just seems that the fed is totally moving really slow and on that same line of topic these federal open market committee meetings happen very often i think actually once a month and these are the meetings where they talk about rate hikes and potentially raising uh interest rates and looking to move things you know, typically when they do this, they're talking about basis points. So I think that the conversation we're having now is a little nuanced. So I think we really need to give people some background information, particularly because a lot of people are like basis points, Federal Open Market Committee, fucking what the fuck are you talking about, right? So I'm going to get into this a little bit, and I know that you'll have a lot to interject about this. So uh, what I really want to hammer here is that so basically the Federal Reserve you don't really have to know much about them, like their background and their history. You just have to know what they do. And I'm going to get into this a little bit here. So the Federal Reserve controls interest rates through the raising of the discount rate, which affects the Fed funds rate. Um, so what you have to know in a nutshell about that is that they're basically controlling how interest rates are going to move, right? So when you go to a bank and you have a savings account, the amount of interest that you're going to get paid, that's the annual percentage yield also abbreviated as the APY. And in the case of loans, like if you have a mortgage or you have any sort of other liability with a bank, that's called APR, annual percentage yield. So when interest rates go up, that means that the rate in which interest rates are just the cost of borrowing money. So what that means is that when rates go up, typically you see 30-year fixed mortgage rates and you see ARM, which is an adjustable rate mortgage rates, you see them go up. So what that means is that the cost of borrowing money is substantially more than it was yesterday. And now it's going to be harder for people to get the money and to get like you're basically just tightening lending criteria and credit criteria. Typically, this is what banks are doing when interest rates go up. So the reason why this is really important is that when interest rates get raised, stocks, bonds and real estate prices typically decrease in value. So rate hikes create an environment that's conducive for like 
super conservative investors. So the rationale of these conservative investors is like, why would you invest in stocks when you can get a guaranteed 5% annualized return by putting your money in the bank and having that FDIC insurance of up to $250,000 per bank account, right? So if you ask me, the Fed uses this weird jargon to muddy the water and to scare people from learning more about the system. And they try to make it seem esoteric. And, it, and it's very um, elitist, some of the verbiage that they use. So like basis points, we mentioned this before. If you're listening to this and you have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about, great. Because this is this segment is for you. So one basis point is the equivalent of 0.1%. That's all you have to know. So a hundred basis points is do the math on that, right? <laughs> it's very simple. 10 basis points is 1%. So there you go. So to take this a step further now, particularly you're saying, okay, this is all macroeconomic shit. How the fuck is this going to affect me making money? So now let's get in, into analyzing investments a little bit. So discount rate is the phrase commonly thrown around in corporate finance, particularly relating to uh, discounted cash flow models, dividend discount, dividend discount models, and capital asset pricing models. So the good news is if you have no idea what the fuck I just said, it doesn't matter because it's all corporate jargon that was created by financiers to make their jobs seem more archaic and to intimidate you. So a large portion of the financial industry just preys upon people's ignorance of financial vehicles and, and just money in general. So just to kind of talk about that a little further, and, and really why this is important. What I want to stress here is that the only thing that matters is what I colloquially call the hurdle rate. So for me, how I look at the hurdle rate, I look at it as 7%. I know that God, he'll have a different figure, but for me, I say 7%. And my rationale is that 7% is the 100 year average return of the stock market adjusted for dividends reinvested and inflation. So if an investment that I'm looking to make, a prospective investment that is, does not yield at least 7% a year after adjusting for inflation, then it's a bad investment and it's not worth my time. So a great example of this is imagine you own a bakery and you operate on 4.4% net profit margins after adjusting for inflation. Monetarily speaking, you are better off closing up shop and throwing your money into the stock market because the 100-year average stock market return adjusted for dividends reinvested in inflation is 7%. Now, what is the main takeaway in that situation? You would yield more money throwing money into the stock market with less effort, right? So God, my question to you is, how do you view some of these investments, right? So I just mentioned how my hurdle rate is 7% because it's the 100-year average return of the stock market adjusted for dividends reinvested in inflation. So under what lens do you view a good investment? Like what percentage, if you had to try to quantify that, like what's your hurdle rate here? Well, it, it, that would that would just depend on the uh, type of investment and the risk profile of the investment. If it was similar to the S and P five hundred, the risk profile of it, yeah, then I would agree that a seven uh, percent uh, rate of return is a, a good MARR. But um, basically, if the if the risk profile is higher, then you have to be compensated for the uh, beta risk of the investment, and you know be paid uh, accordingly. But yeah, I would say around seven to ten percent would be a good uh, hurdle rate to uh, basically, you know, for your portfolio. Right. So in that same camp, particularly pertaining to investments in itself, there's this huge argument that's been going on between active and passive investing. Wall Street doesn't really like passive investing. They fucking hate it. You know why? Because they can't churn fees and people aren't as susceptible to market manipulation. Now, Complete disclosure here, I'm a very big passive investor. I do like trading actively quite a bit, but for the most part, I, at least pertaining to stocks and equities, I do like to be a little bit of a passive investor. So there's a lot of arguments that people have regarding active and passive investing. And the main thing is that you really have to do your homework and you have to see what works for you. But in my experience and in the experience of the studies that I've read, Passive investors typically pace the market with little to no effort whatsoever. And when you think about it, it seems so counterintuitive because your whole life you're told work hard, be smart, be determined, and like you can make it and you can do really well. 
And then you just have passive investors who pretty much are me. And in that sense, they're so fucking lazy and they don't want to do any homework. They don't want to look at any financial statements. They don't want to look at anything. And they're getting a good return and they're pacing the overall return of the market with zero effort beyond having money, opening the account, putting money into the account, and then just buying an index. So really all you do with passive investing is you open a brokerage account, an IRA, a 401k, and you throw your money into broad market index funds. So some great examples of this are VFIAX, V-F-I-A-X, VT-SAX, as I like to call it, V-T-S-A-X, or FISROX, which is hilarious. These are all ticker symbols, by the way. FISROX, F-Z-R-O-X, and that's from Fidelity. Those come to my mind. So the whole thing with index funds is that you effectively own equity in every single publicly traded company. And in something like the Vanguard Total Stock Market Admiral Index Fund, VT Sachs, I colloquially called it, is amazing because you have exposure to every single publicly traded company within one fund. So don't be discouraged by the term Admiral being in there because Admiral is just the classification of the fund being low cost with little to no fees after the initial $3,000 investment. Like I said, don't be scared by the jargon. All the jargon is Googleable. I don't know if Googleable is a word, God, but from here on out, I'm calling this a word. It's a word. <laughs> so Fidelity conducted a study where they looked at the accounts of dead investors and compared them to active investors, and the results would just blow your fucking mind. So you'd think, oh, these people are dead, right? Like, their, their accounts aren't doing that good, right? Like no one's actively trading. Well, Fidelity found that the accounts of dead investors actually outpaced on average active investors. Now, obviously there are outliers who perform better than the market, but more often than not, you're almost always better off investing into a business that you created, a hands-on business, that is, or pursuing a professional designation that will help you earn more in the long run. So a great example of this is the CFA. So the CFA, for those of you who don't know, who aren't privy, and you're just maybe you're interested in personal finance, but you don't know much about corporate finance, and that's fine. So the CFA means chartered financial analyst. So for someone working in finance without a CFA, depending upon where you work and kind of what niche you're in, now this isn't including investment banking. Investment banking, you'll make a lot more than this. But you might make eighty dollars to $85,000 a year, which is a great salary for someone working in finance without a CFA. But now with the CFA, you're promoted faster and you could start working at more prestigious firms for over $120,000 a year as a base salary. So the up, when you think about it, the upfront cost of, that, of earning that designation might be $5,000 plus a lot of your free time, but the return is hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of your lifetime. So if you had to try to extrapolate that and to quantify it and put a percentage on it, it's going to be a lot more than you know, buying an index fund or, or, or buying, you know, Apple stock or whatever, right? Because the amount of money you're going to make from a $5,000 investment could be hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of your lifetime. It, it's just insane how that works. It's it's just fucking unbelievable. And I think more people, I don't know why this has happened recently, but it just seems that more people aren't as focused on active, not even just active investments, but hands-on investments in your business, hands-on investments in you know, different areas of things that you'd be interested in. So I think the main things to look for in a business is like, obviously you have to enjoy what you're doing because if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to be doing it for long and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. So you have to enjoy what you do. And really what you should try to do is try to find something like a hobby or an interest you have that's potentially monetizable and scalable. Scalable is the magic word. If you could build something that's scalable, you will put yourself in a position that is unbelievable and really the sky's the limit. So with anything that's scalable, like if you think about a tutor, I had this conversation with someone the other day. If you think about a tutor and he goes around and maybe he's like a niche tutor and he does like SAT prep and he goes around and he makes good money doing tutoring on the side for, for kids taking the SAT, you know, he's limited by the amount of hours in a day. So the trick is that he's got to get people underneath him that will also assist in the SAT prep while at the same time making sure that he's not diluting his brand and his image that he built in the process. That's so important to do. 
um, and especially in circumstances like that. But now if this person didn't want to scale and they didn't want to go out and to build something like they, like I said, they'd be limited to the amount of hours in a day. How many kids are you going to tutor in a day, right? If you tutor kids for the SAT and you're tutoring them at a rate of, I don't know, three to four kids a day, and then you work nine to five on top of that, that's crazy. You're working 12 hours a day. Who the freak wants to do that? That's horrible. Smart work, not hard work as my father once said, and it's so true, you basically have to put yourself in a position where, you know, you're able to extract the most amount of value, really the most amount of money while providing a substantial amount of value. That's very important. Is there anything that you'd like to say on this topic of providing value to people and going out and starting your own business as opposed to this whole notion of like, oh, just put it in the 401k or, oh, just put it in the IRA. I kind of look at like a 401k and, a, and an IRA as like a moat, like that's like your line of defense, right? So how do you feel about potentially having your own business and focusing on that while also funding your retirement accounts? So in other words, anything beyond like the $6,000 a year you put in an IRA, like you put towards creating your own business. Yeah, I think you should put it all towards uh, creating your own business. What is what is six thousand dollars a year going to do for you? And then you can all, you have to wait, and you can't use it during your life. You have to wait to use it for retirement. Why don't you just spend that six thousand dollars on your business on yourself, and then grow it exponentially instead of putting the money in a retirement account and waiting 35, 40 years for for you to uh, basically be able to spend it? Like, who wants to wait 35, 40 years when you're in a wheelchair? You know, you don't even spend that much money when you're when you're old anyway. You're like sickly. You have you have low health. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. So if you're spending money now when you're young, not when you reach retirement. So you know, I think a lot of these retirement accounts, even though they provide a tremendous amount of uh, tax benefits, you know, they're overrated. I like the idea of doing both. I don't. I don't think you really have to be in one camp or the other. I think too many people fall into this, and especially in America, and not even just America, the world today, too many people fall into this whole notion of like, you have to be on one side or the other, and it's just complete tribalism, and it's kind of bullshit. I, I think you could, I think you don't have to max out your 401k. I think that's a little ridiculous, um, unless your company offers a 100% match up to the maximum amount for a 401k, in which case you might as well do it because it's literally a guaranteed 100% investment on like $20,000 a year or whatever the figure is now, which is insane. Um, and I can guarantee you that there aren't too many companies doing that because if you had the bandwidth to be able to do that, you'd probably retire in, I don't know, five or 10 years, like realistically, assuming like you had a pretty good market in that span. Um, but as far as like, you know, this whole situation, you really can do both. Like there's no reason why you can't like $6,000 a year, $500 a month. It, it, if that's the difference between your business making it and failing, like you're dead in the water anyway. You, I mean, really like $6,000 is not going to put your business over the top. I mean, when you really think about all the different access to free resources and different access to um, just, just different theories and like different strategies of like how to approach things, even look at like, if you're building a tech company, right? Programming, all the programming languages that are used, like you look at C++, you look at R, you look at Python, you know, you look at Java, they're all open source and you have just seemingly like an infinite amount of information available at your fingertips. And you could really build something proprietary and something that can change the world. And really it just comes down to your level of expertise and your creativity in the process. It doesn't really come down to anything else beyond that. I mean, sure you need the hardware to, to be able to do that. But if you're talking about a computer, that's, I mean, pretty much just designated for coding, you could kind of get away with the, something as shitty as like, you know, an I, an I five or like a, an I four, like processor, like you don't really need anything over the top. That's crazy. So, so you're literally talking about creating potentially life-changing technologies or a life, you know, a life-changing app, or um, maybe just some sort of like backend, like um, web hosting or like web development for $500 and, and pretty much just Wi-Fi, which in the United States, if you kind of shop around, you could probably get Wi-Fi about for about 50 to $75 a month. So I don't think like the $6,000 a year in your retirement account is going to be much of a difference. But what I will say is this, you definitely, um, the whole system, the way this system is currently set up is very weird because there are pockets of, I don't know why this happens, but there are pockets of like overconsumption in the country. And 
it particularly looks like it happens quite a bit in these coastal cities. You see it happen a lot in California, New York, Florida, so on and so forth. Any city where there's like a very dense population. And when you look at human psychology, and the main reason I bring this up is because human psychology and investing kind of go hand in hand. When you look at human psychology and, and how it pertains to investing and moreover, you know, overconsumption, you, you realize that all these companies that make quite a bit of money, you know, Coca-Cola, Gatorade, um, you know, any of these clothing retailers that do pretty well, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, any sort of luxury brand, they make their money by appealing to uh, people's insecurities and people's lack of self-esteem. And they just spend billions of dollars, like just pretty much pitching people on like why you need this item or like you're a failure. <laughs> it's just kind of dumb. And I think if people can put themselves in a position where they kind of check out of that and they get out of that mind state, they're, they're going to be able to build things that they didn't think were possible by using capital they wouldn't have had beforehand, you know? Yeah, that's so true. These people have a, um, they have like a uh, minimalistic uh, outlook on things instead of uh, looking at the world as like their oyster and, you know, reaching out and, you know, uh, getting as much as they can. But yeah, $6,000 is not going to really change much when it, when it comes down to your, uh, your life and, and, you know, the way you're living. So, you know, either way, either choice you make, it doesn't really make that uh, much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. I, I would argue that the compounding effects, in, at least in your retirement of $6,000 is more important than any sort of situation where you're putting that towards your business. Like I said, if you need the $6,000 to like put your business over the top, truth be told, I don't think you're going to make it. I don't think you're going to cut it. There are too many people who are hungry and too many people who don't have access to as many resources as you do, who will still find a way to make it because at the end of the day, you know, capitalism is the ultimate meritocracy. It doesn't matter where you come from. It, it really doesn't matter at all. If you have a situation where, you know, you're able to just grind it out and you're able to just kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you're going to make it and you're going to survive. And there are countless examples of that happening. I mean, you look at certain individuals, like you look at Oprah, for example, she did that, you know, with her network and now she's a billionaire. And then even, you know, we talk about Elon Musk so much. I mean, we might as well rename the podcast, the Elon Musk podcast, but you know, he's always in the news cycle. He's always working on cool shit. So we do talk about him. We like talking about him. But he's another guy, you know, he came over as an immigrant from South Africa, moved to Canada, shortly thereafter moved to the United States. And he was living in, um, I think he was living in like youth houses or something like that because he had a big problem with his dad. And when he moved to Canada, he lived with his aunt and uncle for a little bit, but then he had to move out. And, you know, he was just kind of struggling to get by for quite some time. So, you know, you see these people and, and they have these incredible stories about how, you know, they start these multi-billion dollar companies out of their garage or they have like a, a very tough background. Like you look at, for instance, like Damon John, who created FUBU, he had a very tough background too, New Yorker, um, you know, tough, tough guy that uh, beat the odds and started this incredible company, a multi-billion dollar company. And you just look at situations like that and you kind of have to wonder, like, you know, what is holding you back in your life and anything that could potentially be holding you back? How would you go about tackling it? What's the importance in tackling it? And really the main question is how can you provide a better life for yourself and for your family? And if you're able to do that, what can you do for society? Especially for those of you or even myself included who've been put in pretty good positions to succeed. Like what can you do to better society? You know, how I kind of like to approach things, and I know God will agree with this in particular. My main thing with approaching things and how I go about doing it is I almost kind of tackle it like I'm a hammer looking for a nail. And I try to figure out what's the best way possible to be able to solve a problem that society has and how can I uh, be properly compensated for solving that problem. And I think that's what separates billionaires from people who are um, linear thinkers. It's like the whole linear thinker thing we common commonly talk about this of course on the show it's you know pretty funny we rip on warren buffett like oh wow coca-cola is valued at 40 and i could buy it at 39 that's my nebraska accent if you live in nebraska uh, i'm sure you don't sound like that but that's what i imagine nebraskans would sound like and when you sit there and you typically think about exponential thinking and the exponential process of innovation you have to really think about what is the main way of innovation that you can kind of go through to put society in a better position. You know, linear thinkers, they don't really shake the world. As Adam Grant once says in his book, Originals, 
you know, nonconformists move the world. People who say, hey, why is this commonly accepted? Why do people do this? Why do people think that gasoline-powered cars are going to be here forever? Why is it that, you know, we can't build a better way to, to get to the moon? Why is it that we can't build a cheaper airplane to do things? You have to look at everything based upon the problem-solving ability that you were given at birth, and you have to use that to the best of your ability as well as your talents. And I know that God definitely has some words of wisdom he wants to share with the crowd tonight, so I'll let him preach a little. All right, well, on that same note, I think he's a little busy answering prayers. But if there's anything that I want to leave you with tonight, I will say this. The main thing that you people need to focus on is focus on yourself, focus on personal development, focus on professional development, anything that you could do to put yourself in a better position, and not just monetarily, but mentally, physically, financially, that you could do to put yourself in a better position in all those areas I just mentioned. Go for it. Go for it. My challenge to you is that every month come up with something new that you do that you try to incorporate, consider it, and experiment every month. Every month of the year, try to come up with something that you do for the entire month, and hopefully it should be something that will uh, improve your health. I'm not saying don't do anything. I'm not saying to do anything stupid every day for a month. I'm saying to do something that will be productive. Try a new diet. Try exercise. Try you know five minutes every day for a month. If you don't exercise, try that. Do three minutes or whatever, or maybe every week. Like you, you up the amount of time that you're exercising. So if you go on the treadmill. Do three minutes on the treadmill first week, second week, do five, and then build up. You know, walk on the treadmill if you have to. Baby steps. Baby steps are how you get there. You know, you got to walk before you can run, and you got to crawl before you can walk. You have to have some type of progression, and you'll see that the results will be exponential. It's unbelievable. If you're having trouble setting aside money or investing or doing anything else in particular, what you have to understand is, like, you got to start somewhere, man. You start with that first $100, you start with that first $5, $10, $20, and you have to build up from there. And on that note, thanks again for listening to the Anonymous Investors Podcast. I am your host, the Crypto Warlord. God himself, he's been very busy. He's been answering some prayers, but he told me, he reached out to me. He said, tell the people that I love them and that I wish them the best. And on that note, I'll see you guys around next time. Thanks again. And... Good night, San Diego. Peace out.